It's Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling and Richard Cloutier, special guest, joining us right off the top on 680 CJOB. Mr. Cloutier, what brings you in? Well, I'll be off to St. Agath in a little while. I'll have to stop in at home and get a bigger jacket, I would think, because it's uh, as cold as it was 20 years ago out in that area. And as we uh, talk about the flood fight of 1997, and I know you were, you know, just a teenager back then. Mm, I would have, would have been 20. So what were 19, you doing? 19. What were, you, were you sandbagging at the time? No. No? I, 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 I dug a lot of people out of the blizzard, but I, I didn't help with the, those sandbagging. Efforts. And Greg, you were, were you, you were I was here. out west. You were out west. So I was were, out west, yeah. You were watching this. Happen. I was, and I'll never forget. This became obviously a national story. It led the national news every single night. International. I, yeah, was, in, I was in Vernon, and of course, as being a proud Winnipegger, all my friends and, and even people that I wasn't friends with knew I was from Winnipeg. And a lot of them would come into the restaurant and say, geez, I saw Winnipeg on the news last night or this morning. That's got to be rough. And I'll never forget turning on the news. Uh, I guess it was this morning, 20 years ago, when the dike in St. Agath had been breached and that that majestic church in really forming an island in this this Red Sea. It was uh, a surprise in the sense that we thought we had it, right? And uh, this was a temporary dike that was built, and it breached. And there was a call very early in the morning uh, to 680 CJOB at the time saying, help us, help us, help us. And um, I had the opportunity to sit down with the former premier, his honor now, Gary Philman. He is the wife of Manitoba's lieutenant governor, premier at the time. And interestingly enough, Gary Philman did his master's degree in kind of – the hydrology of, of, of uh, flood fighting. So he knows of what he speaks of. And uh, so as an engineer, he was kind of really a cool guy in that sense that he is not a very emotional person on the outside to begin with. But we spoke and he said there were three issues that um, really got heated when he was premier of this province. One was the Meech Lake Accord. That was uh, very divisive in this country uh, on the Constitution. The other one was the emotion of the Jets leaving and the decisions that had to be made back in 1995, 1996. And then, of course, the flood fight of 1997. And um, just dealing with the fall of Grand Forks and then the aha moment, oh my God, this could happen. So we're going to be broadcasting. I'll be doing part of the show from St. Agatha this afternoon and uh, Loren McNabb over at Global. They'll be anchoring the evening news from there. As we talk about that event and look back 20 years ago, we'll talk to some of the people that were there. And and Philman talked to us uh, uh, and we'll, we'll give you some insights as to some of the backroom conversations that occurred. One with a, a general because nearly 30,000 people had been evacuated. And some people decided that they were going to stay home and the military wanted the power to be able to forcibly remove people from their homes at gunpoint. And Philman said, absolutely not. That's not going to happen under my watch. So there were some very heated moments. But there was also a moment in the aftermath of uh, Philman saying, that's not going to happen under my watch, where uh, tragically, no life was lost in this, but tragically, there was uh, a soldier that was severely injured. Well, that was one of the things that I think General Meeting was 
anticipating when he asked me the question about uh, uh, in or out, and that is that there was a, a farmer who was marooned on the roof of his house, couldn't be rescu- uh, couldn't be gotten out of there without a boat, and so a boat with army personnel went uh, to get him off the roof, and uh, they encountered a hydro wire, and. Uh, um, the the soldier reached out to move the wire out of the way of, of the, the Zodiac and actually both of his hands were burned, uh, lost both hands and part of an arm. It was a terrible tragedy. Uh, those are things, of course, that uh, happen in these times, but those were the two very serious uh, things that happened. No loss of life and, and um, you know, to this day people marvel at that, but it was just a an example of how well skilled and how well prepared uh, uh, and committed the people of this province were to ensure that things were done right. We have um, a lot of audio at cjob.com now, and uh, we'll put some video up a little bit later at globalnews.ca as well. And this was, interestingly enough, the coming out party for Manitoba's Hutterite community, because until then they were very, very inward-looking and um, Manitobans needed the Hutterites to help out. And boy, did they in a big way. So when you look back at it, two people, two members of the military, you know, severe injuries there. No loss of life. An incredible Manitoba spirit. But boy, we just made it by, you know, a few feet in some ways. Philman also talked about this whole plan. We'll play that for you after the 4.30 news. There was a military plan to blow up part of the floodway. Excuse me? There was a military plan to blow up part of the floodway just in case the water kept on rising. And Philman talks to us about that. And uh, it was not, it was a worst case scenario that they never thought that they would have to use. But the military decided because they were here in full force. And what do military engineers do? Well, they create worst case scenarios. So there was a story at the time in the height of this that said government considering blowing up part of the floodway. I don't remember that. Part of the floodway and flooding all of southern Manitoba, all southeastern Manitoba to save Winnipeg. And can you imagine waking up on that headline on Saturday and having to deal with that? Philman talks to us about that. And who was responsible for that story? So very interesting revelations by the former premier 20 years later. And you know what? He was Cool Hand Luke at the time, and he still is Cool Hand Luke when it comes to dealing with this. And there there were some harsh words, I remember, from the premier at the time talking about those that had decided to build homes in in this known flood zone and in the aftermath, the conversations about who should get compensation. It was was a, a fascinating time. Well, and let me tell you, Right now, growing up on the LaSalle River in St. Norbert, there were people on the other side of St. Norbert who had built on the Red River on Lord Avenue, and they were allowed to build. And there were attitudes in St. Norbert that had suggested, you know what, let them flood out. They Mm -hmm. decided to build there in the floodplain. They shouldn't have been allowed. And that was one of the themes at times. But when the S started to hit the fan... People put all that aside and sandbagged neighbors' houses. But yeah, it was always, you know, you've built on the floodplain, you deserve what you get in that. That that attitude exists at times, but when Grand Forks fell, 
that all was it all went away. That all went away. But in the aftermath, you know, ring dikes and 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 those tough questions, and those questions get asked even today, Greg. And they need to be asked. Um, when do we talk about the Z dike? How how next week do we talk about? Well, we've talked that about that incredible talked, piece of engineering. Well, and 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 part of what we talked to him about after four thirty is uh, the engineer that had given them a call to tell them <laughs> to dig up the old plans. Because the whole reason why the Z-Dyke was built was that there was this fear that as the red would rise, there was a backdoor way of the water to flow into Winnipeg. And that backdoor was through the LaSalle River. And none of the engineers at the time had considered that. So they get this phone call from this veteran engineer who says, you better dust off those old plans. And those plans existed. They did. And it was a marvel of engineering. The Brunkhill Dyke built in in days using um, buses to kind of um, – As a foundation. As a, a foundation base. for it. Yep. And I remember – and I had the, the opportunity to go south of St. Norbert behind the lines a couple of times at the time. And I remember – uh, the military going in, I guess it was McDermott Lumber at the time, and they just bought all the lumber there. And for uh, any wave action, can you imagine two kilometers of just fence to help with the waves on top of a dike on Highway 75 south of St. Norbert? And um, my parents at the time uh, were evacuated. My mother and father-in-law at the time were evacuated, living at um, the house that we had in, in Fort Richmond in Richmond West at the time. Uh, so on the one hand, I was involved in what, 22, 23 days straight of reporting. We started in, in Grand Forks. Uh, I was teamed up with Kathy Hansen at the time and thinking, hey, I've got it pretty easy. I'm on the road here. Um, the family's got both my parents and my mother and father-in-law living with them for oh, close to a month. But yeah, it was very, I look back on it and go, wow, you know, we, we came within a hair. A lot of people I know were, were affected by that and so many other stories associated with it. And Philman looks back on it, um, I wouldn't say fondly, but looks back on it and says, one of our proudest moments mm -hmm. is Manitobans. And you certainly get that from him. We look forward to the pictures at News at 6 on Global News and uh, more interviews and fascinating discussion with the former Premier. Thanks, Richard. Well, and it's interesting. St. Agath is a growing community now. I've... In the aftermath of that, it is a growing community. And, you know, given what happened 20 years ago, people still want to live there. You know, the river is both our friend and our foe. Richard Cloutier, co-host of The News with Julie Buckingham from 4 until 7 on 680 CJOB. Incredible story. And it's it's wonderful that the that actually I'm glad that Richard mentioned that it's a growing community because as I was just sort of doing a quick Google search, Saint Agath flood, 1997, a story that popped up from Global News was, as it turns out, 10 years ago, and the headline was Saint Agath booming in wake of flood of 97, and I I saw the headline and thought, oh, this is part of this week's coverage, and then I saw the headline was from 10 years ago, so it bounced back quick. Uh, I've said many times that the best thing that ever happened to Grand Forks, North Dakota, in spite of all the tragedy, was the flood and, of course, the, the, the fire downtown that was uh, such a big tragedy, uh, but the amount of federal money, insurance money that came into that community, uh, Grand Forks has never been the same. There was a chance that 
It could have become a ghost town after what happened, but it has really boomed since. And we've seen that all the way up the Red River uh, in St. Agath, in St. Mallow, in these other communities along the Red River that have boomed uh, since 1997. It is 117 on 680 CJOB. If you have any thoughts you would like to share on this matter, 204 780 6868 is the number to call. It is also the number to text. In the meantime, your forecast is coming up next. I think Richard was trying to make you feel bad about the fact that you (laughs) didn't do any sandbagging. You were working otherwise, I suppose. People needed tacos and refreshments and such. (laughs) That's right. I worked at Taco Bell at the time in 1997. Well, and I would have been... It was... Well, yeah. No, I wouldn't have been in high school because I graduated in 95. What did I say? University would have been done. Sorry, I'm just trying to put the pieces together. What would I have been doing then? Yeah, so I guess I would have been, university would have been out for the year, so I would have just been working at the time. Now, I understand I wasn't here, obviously, as I confessed. I heard stories and hear uh, the stories being told about how really uh, schools, high schools were sending busloads of people to different parts of the city, uh, different parts of southern Manitoba to sandbag on a daily basis. The pictures, like I said, when you're from home and you're away in in British Columbia like I was, it was heartbreaking to watch all this take place. When you really wanted to be here helping, I wanted, but I just opened a restaurant and I needed to be there. Uh, but I, my compulsion, my compulsion was to come home and help in any little way I could. And the really one of the iconic uh, moments of that flood fight was 20 years ago today when the dike, the temporary dike at St. Agath uh, was breached and that church, that one that you'll see if you're driving a Grand Forks, you know that white steeple and that church was completely surrounded by water uh, and it really is uh, an indelible image that, that I shall never forget. 204-780-6868 is the number to call and uh, I think, I'm just trying to think of the date, I think that the, the day the, the dike fell was actually uh, the 29th. I think the they are... Are we ahead of it a couple of days? Yeah, I think we're sort of marking the the week okay. that it was, to know. Uh, was breached. But if you have any thoughts, 204-780-6868. Kevin, the garbage man, has just provided a, a thought here. I remember Army helicopters landing in Churchill High School's field. Wow. we Where's that, by the way? Churchill High School is off of Osborne, so South Osborne. You know where the transit garage is. Yep. It's okay. just east of Osborne, and it's in that alcove or elbow of the wi- of the river where the Winnipeg Rowing Club is. Yes, that's okay. That's very nicely done painting that picture. I, I didn't even need to look at a map to figure that out. But he, Kevin says, I remember Army helicopters landing in Churchill High School's field. We lived across the street from the field. Scary and amazing all at the same time. That would be such a bizarre sight. Faux question. Uh, you know, surreal, right, is the word that comes to mind. They had those flares that they would use so that they, we would talked about the construction of the Z dike. Something that should have really taken years to do was done in a matter of days. And they lit the sky at night so the construction could go 24 hours. And the Winnipeg Free Press put out an incredible coffee table book 
of pictures from the flood. And that is one of the scenes, uh, along with the, the steeple of the church at St. Agath, that there's a picture in there of a dark sky that's being lit up by these giant flares so that construction can be happening in the middle of the night. It's uh, awe-inspiring to imagine how close, like Richard says, we came to, you know, to massive flooding in the city of Winnipeg. And it maybe was a genuine turning point for our community to realize that, you know, the NHL had left the spring before mother nature threw everything, including the kitchen sink at it, at us. And we we turned the, the river back through engineering, through hard work and through genuine, really Manitoba spirit. I, I don't know. I wonder if that lit a fire and lit this idea that really we put our minds to it. We can do anything in this province. I think that that was a bit of a turning point, and and uh, John has just sent a text. By the way, I believe this one's being directed your way, Greg. Oh no! John says, "Hey, not a problem. You're here now. Now you can help. My lawn needs to be raked. <laughs> it will help you feel better." Lol. Thanks, John. I'll be right there. Send the address. I'll be right there. I'll bring the boys. Still to come on Mackling and McGarry, we are going to right after Global News at one thirty. We are going to talk about Volunteer Week. Last night was the Volunteer Awards at the Convention Centre, and this week it's Volunteer Week, and we're going to speak with a young woman who's part of the Girl Guides of Canada. She is the youngest member of the board of directors for the Girl Guides, so we'll talk about that and get some insight into what drives this young person to be a volunteer. And at 2.30, we are going to talk about Canadians against the privatization of airports, and then... At 2.45, we're going to be joined by the voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Bob Irving at Blue Bombers Minicamp. It's all coming up on Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. It's 1.34. Wednesday afternoon. Please say it's Wednesday. Yes. Woo! It is. A great text message here. We were talking about the flood of the century, the uh, fall of St. Agathe. And uh, yeah, I mentioned St. Malu, St. Malo. I was thinking of St. Adolph. Couldn't uh, come up with that. Of course, St. Malo, uh, quite far from the river. It's booming as well, from what I understand. All that area uh, south of Winnipeg is going crazy. How about this? Kyle says, in 1997, I was in grade two at Harrow School. The army came one day so we could help out with donations. There was a classmate of mine who just immigrated from Africa. I don't remember the country, but he was terrified of the military as they were very bad in his country. They allowed him here in Winnipeg to ride with them in their armored vehicle to the donation site to show Canada's army helps people in times of need, not harm them. I'll never forget that. And I think there was a genuine connection created between this part of the world and the military during the flood of the century. There was a parade to celebrate all the work and help that had been provided by the military. Uh, Incredible times, good, bad, and and all in between, Brett. All kinds of flood discussion this afternoon on 680 CJOB. Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham will have lots of coverage, uh, including some from St. Agath and... Part of Richard's discussion with former Premier Gary Philman all this afternoon on the news with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham. Want to switch gears now to talk about National Volunteer Week. Yesterday we had the Volunteer Awards in Winnipeg at the Convention Center. Uh, that was for the the Manitoba. It was the VMAs. It was a vol- why am I forgetting the M? Is it Volunteer Manitoba Awards? Sounds right. <laughs> I should know this, but I'm, I'm drawing a complete blank. So my apologies. I know it's for not that. video music awards. So 
Music Awards. But uh, we're talking about National Volunteer Week. And to help us talk about that, we have with us on the phone Madeline DeShane, who is the youngest member of the Board of Directors and Chair of the Girl Guides of Canada National Youth Council. She joins us live from... Where are you calling from, Madeline? I'm calling from Toronto, actually. Well, thank you for joining us today on 680 CJOB. So you're 20 years old. You're the youngest member of the Girl Guides of Canada Board of Directors. What drove you to continue with the Girl Guides and continue to be a volunteer? So I decided to continue to be a volunteer because um, I really like to see uh, the impact that I'm having on girls and it helps me. Girl Guides Canada is such a great way to um, make a difference in my community and, and being on a national board throughout Canada as well. And I've also learned an incredible amount from my short time on the board uh, and as a, a unit guider, um, which just means that I'm directly working with the girls. I've learned a lot of uh, like business management skills and strategic thinking, and then working um, directly with um, girls, you learn a lot of like interpersonal skills and resilience because you always have to be adapting for for all the girls and stuff. So it's it's been really really re- rewarding experience, both because I'm able to make a difference, but also because uh, I'm learning a ton. <laughs> What are some of the skills that young girls, young women that get involved in the girl guides and its various levels? Brownies still a thing? Yeah, brownies. Brownies is uh, our is, so Sparks is our youngest age group, and then it goes brownies, uh, girl guides, and pathfinders and rangers. So, so yeah, what, what some all the, the way up. What, what what's the benefit and uh, what what do young girls and women get out of those organizations and and moving and making their way through the the different levels of guiding then, Madeline? So um, as a girl member, you gain a lot of confidence and um, leadership skills and you get to explore. I know it really helped me to explore all different um, fields of uh, knowledge and you were exposed to things that you wouldn't normally be exposed to necessarily um, in school, especially with um, giving back to the community. I, I remember doing a, a, a walk through the community where we were painting fish on um by the sewer grates to make sure that people knew that this was for water and not for uh, paint or pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then as a as a leader, uh, you gain a lot of, as I said mentioned before, you gain leadership, um, collaboration, and uh, resiliency. And you're working together with um, different types of people. So you're working with other unit leaders. You're also working with the girls and um, and the parents, of course, as well. So you've got a um, balance all of their needs and so it, it just teaches you a lot about um, how to be a leader and how to be confident in that position. Well I would imagine it also teaches you about time management because at age <laughs> 20 you know you as we pointed out you're the youngest member of the Girl Guides of Canada Board of Directors you're also the mm-hmm. chair of the Girl Guides National Youth Council when do you find time to not be a girl guide? <laughs> Well, actually, um, so it does sound like it's a lot, um, but you're right. Yes, time management skills have come in very handy, but I'm actually, I'm studying at Queen's University, so I'm in my third year, so <laughs> I've got to make time for things other than Girl Guides, um, but it, it, it's really just 
um, Girl Guides of Canada is very flexible and they're very supportive with, um, they, they want to support me in being able to fully fulfill my role for Girl Guides of Canada, but they also don't want me to um, miss out or it to, to detriment my, my other pursuits. So they're very supportive in that um, I have a staff person that working directly with me. So she helps me a lot. And um, and as a unit leader, we're, I'm I'm not the only one who's working on with the group. So during exams, I took a little bit of a step back, and um, some of my other leaders kind of took took a bigger bigger role. Yeah, I see volunteering almost as a Canadian pastime, a rite of passage to spend some time <laughs> in your life volunteering for something in some group or giving your time to some organization that is worthy of one's time. Talk about how volunteering is a part of the Girl Guide way and that that ability for volunteering to help kickstart a career or, or maybe improve your chances of getting into that university post-secondary education institution that you would uh, really like to attend? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as uh, working with the girls, you're able to really impact their lives and help them to become more confident and independent. And, um, and then as, and what I, I have gained from it um, means that I'm able to um, put all those skills on my resume. I'm able to talk about um, many different experiences that I've I've gone through to demonstrate um, to employers that uh, that I have gained leadership or that I have been in a role of mentorship and um, and conflict management and strategic thinking. And specifically with my role on the board of directors, it um, really shows my my professionalism and my ability to um, time management and, um, and, but there's so many different roles and ways to get involved with Girl Guides of Canada. And I've talked uh, about my role on the board of directors and also as a unit leader, but um, there's also advisory roles that you can take on. So if um, maybe you want to get into finance, you can um, work with uh, Girl Guide groups or um, your province to as for financial planning, or maybe if you're um, in more of a marketing side of things, you can do public relations. And we're always looking for for volunteers, especially younger volunteers, to um, to help them, but also to help us as an organization to stay relevant and and quote unquote cool for um, for the younger age group. Because if we're having um, younger members who are driving our organization, they really know what what's up. <laughs> Madeline, at 20 years old, you're the youngest member of the Girl Guide Board of Directors. What was the previous youngest member? Do you know? No, I'm not actually sure. But I think that, um, so they were, they really were specifically looking for somebody who is between the ages of 18 and 25 for my position, because I'm also the chair of the National Youth Council. So, um, and this is the first time we've actually had the National Youth Council. So um, they really wanted uh, some someone on the board who would be able to connect with these girls really well and um, engage them to uh, share their voices. And they actually play a really huge role in um, shaping our organization. So um, I want to say somewhere around the maybe 30s is probably the youngest. We actually have um, maybe there's there's probably three or four other uh young women who would be considered millennials who are actually on our board. So it's just very exciting to, to have um, so many different perspectives and to also have that, that younger youth voice who's uh, being represented. 
Yeah, there, there's always this concern about being cool when you're a kid, right? And, and being <laughs> accepted by your friends. Is guiding still cool or has it become cool again? Where does it fit in in the overall uh, spectrum for young people these days? I think that um, guiding is definitely cool if you uh, explain what it is that you're doing, for sure, because uh, so many of the activities that we're doing are very cool. Like, um, we go on lots of adventures, and I know that um, with Girl Guides of Canada, I've traveled to Mexico, and this next um, this fall, I'm traveling to, to India, to a world center in India for the World Conference. So there's so many different opportunities and the ability to give back to your community and um, make changes in your community, I think for myself personally is a very cool thing and you're learning so many different skills that uh, as a girl, but also as an adult um, in the organization. So uh, I think that that is very cool. Uh, so I would say Girl Guides Canada is a very cool organization and um, we, yeah, yeah, I would, uh, I'm very much encourage anyone who's interested in getting involved. Madeline, you mentioned that there's Sparks, Brownies, Girl Guides, Pathfinders, and Rangers. What mm-hmm. made you stop at Girl Guides? Uh, so actually, I went up to Pathfinders, and um, I the reason that I stopped in Pathfinders was um, just because I, I got very busy with school and applications for university and um, and volunteering in, in, in other organizations, but uh, I've definitely I've come back as an adult member and um and Girl Guides of Canada is so welcoming because uh it doesn't matter that that you've stopped and I think a lot of it too is just that um it kind of speaks to the the flexibility uh, of the organization in that uh they're they're more than willing to accept you back and I think if I'd I'd worked a little bit harder in uh uh continuing to to volunteer with the organization, they would have been uh, very welcoming to or flexible to, to support me while I was still very busy. So, Madeline, thanks for helping us celebrate uh, Volunteer Week and appreciate you giving us some insight into the Girl Guides. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for having me. Oh. And big shout out to all our, our volunteers Absolutely. Uh, across the country and specifically in, in Manitoba. Uh, you guys are what makes our organization so great. So. You know what? Before I let you go, just got a text message from a listener. Is there any cost involved, for example, for a nine-year-old girl? I guess that would be brownies or would that be sparks? A nine-year-old would be brownies, yes. Um, There is a small fee involved um, for registration, but... um and I think on the website, it'll say specifically because I think it varies um, province to province. So I can't speak on the exact fee, but it's, um, I, I don't think it's very large. And I think that if you, uh, if there's a financial difficulty, then um, we actually have a lot of programs to support girls who um, may or may not be able to afford it. So if, if finances are something as a, is a barrier, definitely reach out to um your provincial council or your area council and um, they'll see what they can do for you because they, uh, they definitely want anyone who's interested in being involved to not have anything stopping them from being involved. 19,000 volunteers involved in making uh, sparks, brownies, uh, girl guides a reality. Uh, Thanks so much. And and buy those cookies, right? Because they're delicious. (laughs) They really are. Yeah. And I think they started selling. So (laughs) thank you so much, Madeline. We really appreciate it. What's the website before we uh, hang down on you here? 
Uh, so for Girl Guides of Canada, I think it's www.girlguidesofcanada.ca. And I uh, assume if you put in Google uh, Girl Guides Canada Manitoba, you'll definitely find a website as well. I have a feeling you're absolutely correct. Madeline <laughs> Deshen, she is a Girl Guides of Canada volunteer, youngest member of the Board of Directors and Chair of the Girl Guides of Canada National Youth Council. And we've been talking, this sort of ties in with what we were talking about earlier, you know, with, with that, like you said, I think Rich was trying to make you feel bad because I didn't volunteer to help out with the sandbagging. So it kind of ties in with the spirit of volunteering in Canada. It was, I have confirmed, it was the Volunteer Manitoba Awards last night. So perhaps in the few minutes we have left in this hour, if you have any thoughts that jump to mind about volunteer experiences Give us a call or a text at 204-780-6868. Lots of awards given out last night, but I want to give a shout out to our former colleague here at Chorus Radio Winnipeg, Susan Creepart, who has been uh, raising funds and baby formula Mm -hmm. for several years. I think it's four now. She's into six figures, the amount of money and the amount of money worth of baby formula. The Magnus Hay Foundation Mm. uh, that she founded uh, really you know, with 60 bucks wanting to go (laughs) to Winnipeg Harvest for baby formula. And I'll never forget her being at the Christmas party four (laughs) years ago and her tackling me and saying, whatever cash you've got in your wallet, I want it right in here. You can pay for everything else with your credit card tonight. And I obeyed her. Really? Oh, absolutely I did. (laughs) She strong-armed you. She did. And uh, um, it's just uh, one of those inspiring stories of someone who saw a need, put herself out there, said, I will come and pick up a donation no matter how big, no matter how small. And so congratulations uh, to our friend uh, Susan for her award. It just happened to be the Global News Women in Leadership Award. 204-780-6868 is the number to call. Do you have any stories about volunteering that you would like to share? Perhaps, maybe not for you, but maybe uh, your kids are getting involved like Madeline. Madeline's 20 years old. Maybe your youngsters are getting involved in volunteering and learning of the benefit that it provides them, not just for their careers, but to just help out their fellow human beings. Not to sound super corny, but hey, what... That seemed to strike that. You were going to say fellow man, and then you knew that someone would jump all over you for saying that, and you said fellow human beings. No, I actually wasn't. I, no? was, I was debating whether or not I wanted to go down that corny road entirely. <laughs> I went for it. It is well done, time sir. for your well forecast done. coming up next. I'm Brett. He's Greg. want to offer a quick apology to Ron, who tried to call us at 126, and we tried to record Ron's phone call off the air. I couldn't quite remember how to do it in here. There's a way to do it, and I forgot how to do it. So we tried to transfer Ron to the newsroom. Greg ran out to intercept him and record him over there, but the phone was picked up, and then he was suggested to call back to 782. It was just, it was a big cluster something or other. And uh, sorry, Ron. So feel free to give us a call at 204-780-6868 if you're still listening. Brings us to a text message from David. We were talking about uh, the fall of St. Agath, the flood of 1997, 20 years later. Uh, I mentioned that, you know, that whole area around Highway 59. Brett, you pulled up an article that 
was from 10 years ago, mm-hmm. saying that St. Agath was booming then. And of course, St. Adolph. I said St. Mallow. I was thinking of St. Adolph, which is a little further north, also booming, becoming these uh, very important bedroom communities around the city of Winnipeg. Lots of uh, different housing options in those communities as well. David reminded me that St. Mallow is a little bit further away from the river. And uh, I texted him back, apologized. He said, hey, no problem. I've got lots of memories of the flood as I live in Niverville, another booming community south of Winnipeg. And we were in the front lines of the fight. We had the Royal 22nd Regiment, the Van Dues, headquartered in town and Huey helicopters landing on the high school yard across the street from my house, and that was a common sight. I sandbagged, directed traffic that would come to the dike at the west end of town on PTH 311 to sightsee, even saw people take wedding pictures on the dike. Wow, that's impressive. Thank you for sharing that, Dave. We appreciate that. Very cool. Before we go to the news, you just got to quickly tell you this. and <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm going to tell the story. We got some text messages here. <laughs> They're adorable, by the way. <clears throat> hey, sweetheart, I hope you're having a wonderful and productive day. I love you. I can't wait to talk to you later tonight. I miss you. Kiss, 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 flower, 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 heart, 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 heart. And Greg and I looked at each other and said, I don't think this was meant for us. So I replied and said, hey, thanks for the kind words. We miss you too, Brett and Greg. And <laughs> Sorry, guys, I meant to say that to my girlfriend. But uh, he, this person is challenging us now to for a cancer care challenge for life. So look at that. Your mistake could lead you to some fundraising. I just thought it was funny. I get, My friend Kent texts me all the time. Texts that are meant for his wife. Really? Thank goodness they're always rated PG no more than that. (laughs) The news is up next. 2.06 on this Wednesday afternoon. And uh, Brett, I don't know about you, uh, but sometimes when you meet a person, instantly you're connected with them and there's something about them that you genuinely like. And uh, such is the case with our uh, new friend, Omar Rahimi, who's in the studio with us this afternoon, we're, we're talking about his incredible project, the incredible work that he does to, to make sure that refugees that come to Canada have a job and, and hire a refugee. How does it get much simpler than that? Omar, thanks for coming to see us today. Come closer to the microphone so we can hear your your incredible voice. Your story is powerful. And I think we should maybe start there uh, with a simple question. Where were you born? Thank you, Greg. Uh, um, I was uh, born in a refugee camp called uh, Altash Refugee Camp in uh, Western Iraq in province of Al-Anbar province in Western Iraq. And in 19, around 1982-1983, because my parents are uh, not sure, uh, it was the war was going on, so they're not sure when exactly I was born. Um, so we don't know exactly... Actually, I my real birthday, I don't know. So I could be off by two years, three years, one year. Um, anyways, uh, I was born there and uh, I grew up in the camp in uh, for about 18 years. Uh, and then Canada came uh, to our camp in uh, around 2000, 2001. Can you, just for geography, for people that uh, try to figure out exactly the geography of of where this camp was, and this was born out of the uh, internal strife uh, in in Iran, correct? Um, or the war between Iran and Iraq? Yes, in 1980, uh, my parents and many many other Kurds they live in the borders between Iraq and Iran, 
And the, back at that day, there was uh, the villages. They didn't have uh, radio or TV or probably didn't even have electricity. And people keep saying, oh, Iraqi army and this and this is coming. And, and people didn't believe it until uh, they actually saw the bombs drop. So they rushed uh, to go away. And when they crossed the Iraqi border and they saw millions of Iraqi tanks and army, then they realized they made a good choice. And uh, they uh, came to Iraq and they were shipped to western Iraq because that's uh, close to the border is further from the west. So they uh, about 40,000 Kurds, Iranian Kurds, were stationed in Altash camp in 1980 and years after that because the year the war went on for about uh, eight years and um, so all the people came to the desert and they put a step down and the sand came up to their waist and nobody has ever stepped a foot there and um, we used to call it uh, united nations used to call it uh, no man's land and uh, our people a lot of our people died uh, in the camp, and I seen with my own eyes uh, people who got sick and died, and young, old, women, everybody just get all kind of disease, and there was a lots of water shortage. It's very hot; never rained there. Maybe in few years, once rain, and uh, yeah, it was really, really tough, tough uh, to live there. But we are so lucky that Canada came there and. We're so lucky to be in Winnipeg and to live here. You say that you lived in this refugee camp for 18 years? Yes. Can you sort of, I'm just trying to think of the picture how big this camp would be. Is that something that you could maybe describe or perhaps compare to, like a, how big would a, would a refugee camp be? Well, the camp was... Uh, it was, like I say, about 40,000 people, but it was all packed up together. All these people used to be families and tribe people from the borders between Iran and Iraq. So all the people stuck together and they helped each other. But uh, it was really, really tough because uh, you couldn't work. You couldn't get out of the camp because it was all fenced. And um, many people just... Uh, uh, you know, I remember when I was little and I grew up there, it was so tough, you know, just hungry, thirsty all the time. And there's so many people and the sandstorms and and dust. And, you know, sometimes you put a rug down and you can't see your rug because it was covered in sand. And we knew we have no way out. We got nowhere to go and we just sit there. And a lot of people very... Uh, uh, religious and they just they think you know if this is God wants we you know this is what he wants and one day maybe we will uh, have a way out but uh, for years uh, the people lived there at least 10 years the least people lived there was like 10 years um, so you mentioned Canada yes arrived on the scene yes tell us about that day tell us about that time when you realized that maybe something was about to change uh, coming to Canada, you know, it's very nerve-wracking, you know. It's it's tough to say because you don't uh, really know what you're getting yourself into and 
you can many people can tell you oh canada is nice you're going to go there but you actually is very nervous you you don't know what to expect if you know somebody here that's good but we don't know anybody here so who came. was we who uh, you, you obviously had to make an application to yes. come yes. and do interviews uh, how to tell us about that process just a little bit i don't want to get hung up on yeah. on the whole process but just talk about who came and, yeah. and 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 who didn't come well we were about uh, about 150 families from the camp eventually came uh, and canada canadian government had a embassy in baghdad and from there they would drive to our camp and then we all sat in a in an office of a united nations office i remember very very good they interviewed uh, us in the camp a canadian embassy with a and the lady i remember very very good her face i'll never forget she sat across from us with the interviewer and interviewed me my dad my mom and four sisters and my brother and uh and we were very nervous because uh, there is rejection is possible and usually canada doesn't reject anybody um, unless very you know something that's obvious but they didn't reject us and three months after the interview we came to winnipeg uh, december 13 2001 of course it was <laughs> yeah. the middle of december yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. typical story never right? seen snow before we were so excited to see snow we are we were so excited i couldn't believe we see snow never ever seen snow before and we we played in the snow for like one day two day and then we, real, we realized it was so cold <laughs> so we didn't play anymore <laughs> we uh, yeah we we learned very quickly it was cold but uh you know i'm so glad we came i couldn't be happier and for our people for my family uh we went through very hard time when we came uh, it was very difficult uh, to live here and to get to know everything but it, i think it's really worth it Uh, every year it just gets better uh, if you be patient you keep working keep working hard it's it will get better we're going to continue our conversation with Omar Rahimi who is the co-founder of hire a refugee and the headline that that brought Omar here today is hire a refugee saddened by racism racism in Canada the untold story and we want to get into some of that after your forecast which is up next Omar Rahimi is in studio with us this afternoon he's co-founder of Hire Refugees telling us his harrowing story of coming to Canada and Omar we really want to get to why you're doing what you're doing in terms of encouraging people to hire a refugee to create an organization like this that connects new comers to Canada to jobs what do you do I am a You're I'm here, a, you're a hard-working guy, I can <laughs> yeah, tell. Yeah. What, what, do you, what do you do? I am a, uh, I do painting, uh, painting houses, uh, painting. I own a company, it's called Beautiful Canada Painting, and I started that in 2010. After I went back to Iraq in 2000, when I became Canadian, my wife was still in uh, Iraq, uh, in northern Iraq this time, because their camp was moved, uh, it was uh, took over by Al-Qaeda. So I went back to the camp and I saw Europe and I saw Middle East again and I saw and I realized how good we have it here in Winnipeg. 
in, in Canada. And when I came back, I was looking to start my company. And I, I really fell in love with Canada so much more when I returned to, to the camp and I saw our people suffering. And um, so I decided to name my company Beautiful Canada Painting because I really believe Canada is beautiful in every way. Uh, I know it's cold in the winter, but uh, still beautiful. We get a lot of water. We have a lot of water here, which is good. So, and uh, we paint. We paint houses. Uh, my dad also uh, comes, helps me. My dad has a lot of injuries from the war and the fighting in Iraq, uh, but um, he's grateful because we have good health system. Uh, fixed him up, and uh, he has bullets in his body, and he's got arthritis. But uh, he comes out. He helps me. Uh, paint, uh, cleaning, anything. Uh, so we we paint houses, uh, and then we we started uh, HireRefugee.ca with the uh, with the help of uh, Lloyd Axworthy and Bob Axworthy, and they bring great great help for us uh, to even to be you know mentioned in the same name with them is is just unbelievable. I can't believe that we have somebody like Bob and Lloyd helping me. You know, I'm refugee. I'm painter, you know. I'm nobody. Like I came from nowhere, and we have great people like this helping us. Uh, you know, just you know, to get uh, more people connected, the newcomers who are coming right now, uh, they got nowhere to turn. You know, we got Yazidis coming. Uh, you know, the Syrians, uh, Muslims, Christians, uh, all suffering all together and uh, all suffering in Iraq and Syria and they coming here, they really need help. Not just uh, working help, they need counseling, they need uh, dealing with trauma, dealing with, uh, you know, they just need a friend, somebody in Canada telling them and showing them directions how to uh, go about things. Everything, you know, how, you know, where to park, where not to park, where to... Uh, where to go uh, if you need uh, food, if you need a good food, if you need... Uh, so they need help with everything. And uh, we need more people try to help refugees, newcomers coming, especially the Yazidis. Uh, the Yazidis are uh, a small sector, a minority group in Iraq and Iran. They're really suffering so much. And they're coming to Winnipeg now, and they really need a lot of help. And I hope people can, uh, you know, watch out for them as well you've got a website here and it works uh hire refugee.ca if i go there what happens there um if you go to our website hire refugee uh, you will uh, be able to contact with bob uh, because i usually go out and uh, do the jobs and then bob uh, helps us which is very important because uh, i don't have to do the emailing and uh, uh and estimating, I go look at the job and then we send the estimate through Bob and the website. Uh, so uh, you will be contacting with Bob Axworthy and we'll get you the best help we can. So we do jobs like snow shoveling, cleaning, raking leaves, uh, stuff that doesn't need English, which is good for newcomers. And, um, uh, you know, it's very hard work sometimes. Uh, uh, sometimes it's hard, uh, even today is not very cold for us, but for newcomers, very, very cold today. Uh, so it's hard to do those kind of jobs, raking leaves, you know, we working Bridgewater, uh, picking up all the debris in the fields. And when a couple of the Syrian guys call me, say, Omar, we go home. 
it's cold. I said, it's cold. He said, yeah, yeah, it's cold. So I said, okay, it's, uh, it's not cold for us. But <laughs> so they'll, they'll get used to the weather as the time goes on. But you go to the website, you contact with, uh, with us, and we'll come and give you an estimate or whatever you need. I have to ask this because I, I, I couldn't quite tell. You, you said that uh, your wife, when you came here, your wife was still there? Yes. Is she here now? Um, it's a long story, um, but my wife and me and my family, we've been through a lot of hard time uh, over the years. And um, being from Iraq is never easy. It's always for war. And uh, I, when we were 17, me and my wife got engaged and I came to Canada. She stayed back. I was hoping to sponsor her. But um, uh, it was hard for me when I first came here. I didn't know how to sponsor her. By the time I got the papers going and everything, um, the, you know, 2003 in April, the coalition went in there and they tried to take out uh, Saddam. But I lost contact with my wife for about a year and a half. and uh, A year and a half? Yes. Uh, there was before internet was there and there was nothing there. So finally we connected in 2005, end of 2005, 2006. Then uh, by 2007 I became Canadian. And me and my dad went back um, and uh, close to their camp... Um, my dad and my wife and my two sisters, her sisters were shot. And my dad was injured very, very badly on the back. And there was a suicide bomber who blew up and about 80 people died. It was a busy market. And then my wife was injured badly in the head. And I was there too, but I was in another city waiting for them to come meet me. And it was the hardest thing to... Uh, to find out, to uh, you know, your whole family is being shot, and it was hard to go see them. Uh, bullets were flying everywhere, and I didn't go see them for about a week. And um, but you know, thank God, uh, my dad survived. Um, but we're still dealing with the trauma. Um, my wife's sisters um, still suffering, and they're still in the camp. My wife finally came to Canada in 2009, November. Uh, you have a son now. We had a son uh, as soon as she came here. About uh, one year later, we had my, my son. He's about six years old. And um, we're so lucky. We, we owe everything to people in Winnipeg. I can't say enough uh, about so many good people in Winnipeg. Um, Help me, my wife, my, uh, you know, my dad all the churches and all the good people in Winnipeg helped us. Omar Rahimi is co-founder of Hire a Refugee. You can go to the website hirearefugee.ca and beautiful Canada painting. Yes. Is the name. Painting, Do you yeah. have a website for that? Uh, .ca, yes. Beautifulcanadapainting.ca? Yes. Omar, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank, thank you so you, much for you. telling thank us you your so story. Much. Thank you so much. 227, the news is next. Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling with you through until 4 o'clock. Then it's Richard Cluche and Julie Buckingham. Richard on his way to St. Agath, Manitoba, south on Highway 75. You'll remember, uh, well, I guess not exactly 20 years ago today, as Brett has told me, uh, St. Agath uh, consumed by 
the Red River and the flood of the century back in 1997 were commemorating the day that the uh, temporary ring dike around St. Agath was breached and uh, the day that really made us all realize that this was super serious. If things coming out of the pictures and the experiences in Grand Forks wasn't uh, wake-up call enough, this is when we knew that we were in for a huge battle, a bigger battle than maybe many had anticipated. And what did you think about that revelation that Richard shared with us about the Army's potential plan to blow part of the floodway? That's unbelievable. I I, I think my reaction was roughly the same as yours, which was... What? <laughs> Where did that come from? So the fact that we're just hearing that now for the first time, I think, is incredible. So we'll hear more of that story on the news this afternoon. I believe they, they're doing, they're going to play some of that conversation after 4.30. With uh, former Premier Gary Philman. Yes, that is correct. So all kinds of coverage this afternoon and this week on 680 CJOB and Global News. Right now we want to talk about airport privatization. Canadians not prepared to clear this idea for takeoff, Greg. A plan to sell Canada's eight largest airports to the private sector appears to be grounded. For now, a new public opinion poll from the Angus Reid Institute suggests Canadians will be content if the idea stays stuck on the runway altogether. Let's uh, bring in now our friend Ian Holiday from Angus Reid Institute, Public in- Interest Research. And uh, Ian, uh, does this come as a surprise? And maybe you could uh, go over some of the results. How how strongly do we feel about Canada's airports uh, remaining in the in the same uh, hands that they they are now. Well, I think it's one of those things where if you ask Canadians about it, many of them haven't really ever thought about it before, but they still have a sort of uh, gut reaction, and and that gut reaction for most Canadians, for about fifty three percent of Canadians, is yeah, I think that's a bad idea, and we probably shouldn't do it. Um, so yeah, we, you know, here at the Angus Reid Institute knew that this was something that the government had been looking into, although the prime minister has in recent days sort of, uh, poured cold water on it, perhaps because he had some of his own internal polling showing that it would be a bad idea. I don't know that that's the case, but, um, yeah, very, very few Canadians there. Canadians are more likely to say that they don't know how they feel than they are to say that they think that it would be a good idea to sell the country's airports to the private sector. And so this, what's the structure right now for those that don't know? We know we have the, in Winnipeg, the Winnipeg Airport Authority, sort of a, a nonprofit organization or is essentially what WAA is for those that don't understand the, the current system, Ian? Right. So currently the airports in this country are basically sort of Arms, I mean, they're not crown corporations, but they are basically sort of arm's length nonprofit crown corporations, so to speak. The federal government still owns the facilities, but they uh, lease them to uh, these nonprofit airport authorities um, who are charged with, you know, running the airports and making all the decisions about how to manage the airports. Um, and so this is, you know, theoretically, all of those leases have expiration dates and the government will have to at some point decide what to do with them in the future. Um, And it is a potentially huge source of one-time revenue if the federal government wanted to cash in, right? The valuations on the eight largest airports, which includes Winnipeg, 
um, is uh, is anywhere from uh, $7 billion to uh, as much as $40 billion, depending on the estimate that you look wow. at. So there's a lot of potential money that could be turned around and plowed back into infrastructure, which is why governments might find this to be an appealing prospect. Um, that said, our research finds that uh, doing so would probably come with a political price because Canadians do not want it to happen. The eight airports, by the way, in case you're wondering as you listen to this radio station, the eight airports are Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Calgary, Edmonton, Ottawa, Halifax, and Winnipeg. And our guest is Ian Holiday from Angus Reid talking about airport privatization and how Canadians are not prepared to clear this idea for takeoff. Ian, what would the effects of privatization be? Well, in addition to the one-time revenue for the federal government, which I, I think, you know, as I said, is is a real potential boon to particularly some of the infrastructure invents, investment that the Trudeau government has still sort of been struggling to really get underway. Um, there is a a sense among Canadians when we ask them, you know, what would the effect of privatizing Canada's eight largest airports be, there is a sense that it would be bad. Uh, there is a sense that uh, the overall experience of traveling from a Canadian airport port would worsen. There is a sense that uh, security would worsen. And um, there is an even stronger sense among the Canadian public that even those two things aside, the cost of air travel in this country would go up if airports are privatized. Now, go ahead, Ian. It, it 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 remains to be seen whether that would actually be the case. There's there's no way to say with certainty, and and many Canadians do say, you know, I don't really know. I don't feel qualified to weigh in on this. Um, but those individuals are outnumbered by people who go with this gut reaction, saying, no, no. It's going to be bad. So, Ian, a lot of people are going to be uh, wondering and maybe even shouting at the radio, wow, I'm sure the uh, airports in the United States of America are are, are privately run enterprises. Yeah, the the Canadian airport system is a little bit unique uh, around the world. Most airports are either fully privatized or sort of fully government run. This... uh, Arms Length Nonprofit Corporation is a uniquely Canadian solution to air travel, um, and it's it's one that, depending on what your measure is for the success of an airport, has either worked out uh, fabulously well or has stifled competition and and you know made led to higher costs for consumers. Well, there's also a fear as well that uh, if the Canada's airports are privatized, that uh, it would have a negative effect on airport security. Yes, and that is an interesting one. It's it's one that's a little difficult to uh, ascribe a motivation to. You know, it's always a little bit reading tea leaves when you're talking about this is a finding that we have in our poll, but why do people feel that way? That one's a bit strange simply because uh, security, at least in terms of the security 
checkpoint and security clearance that we all think of going through when we go through an airport is handled by the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority, CATSA, um, and it would be managed by CATSA regardless of who is the owner of the airport. So in theory, there should actually be no discernible difference in the way that security is administered, at least at that sort of checkpoint boarding the plane sort of level. Um, so, you know, the, the potential for a change in security that would come with privatization would be in the more um, ancillary security processes, the sort of security guards working both uh, beyond the security checkpoint and bef before the security checkpoint and some of the, the general, like, um, you know, uh, closed circuit television surveillance type stuff that would happen at the airports. So that's the stuff that could actually change. It's not really clear whether Canadians are reacting to potential worsening of sort of those factors that would be in the control of a new private airport owner, or if they are reacting to um, an actual perception that the federal security agency that's in charge of this issue would be doing a worse job, um, which is a, a bit of a, a tenuous connection to try to make. Ian, I think I owe you an, uh, an apology here. Uh, maybe it's a conversational way that I engage uh, versus just uh, asking a straight up question. So uh, just I don't want to present anything falsely here. Uh, essentially, every major airport in the United States is not privately owned, right? It is it is a very similar system to what, what happens here in Canada. Um, yes, that is correct. Just wanted to make sure. And according to uh, the information I have, it's about 90% of all airports around the world are in a in a pseudo-publicly held uh, corporation or agency like we have here in, in Winnipeg and, and across Canada. I just wanted to make sure that we didn't disseminate any false information there. Uh, thank you for that. Ian Holiday from Angus Reid. Listen, we're going to wrap it up here. We want to thank you for bringing us uh, some insight into this. And if anybody listening to this wants to actually see uh, the results of this survey, is there anywhere online that you can point them to? Yes, they can go to angusreid.org. It's the top story there right now. And uh, there's lots more information uh, available, including differences that uh, people have in their views on this issue based on how frequently they travel. All right. Ian, thank you so much for the time once again. Uh, we appreciate the time from Ian Holiday of Angus Reed. Once again, angusreed.org is the website. Airport privatization. Canadians not prepared to clear this idea for takeoff. And up next, uh, here's an idea we are prepared to clear for takeoff. The Blue Bombers. Winnipeg Blue Bombers. We're going to be joined by Bob Irving. After your forecast, up next. How's your conversion from Celsius to Fahrenheit? I have my no, worst Minnesota accent. I have no idea how to make the conversion. I just Google whatever temperature Celsius to Fahrenheit. I do not understand Fahrenheit. When we're in this sort of zone here, I think if you double and add 30, 
you're going to be really close. So okay. it's about 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And don't want this to be the focus of our conversation with Bob Irving, but I can only imagine that it was a source of conversation and discussion for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers who took to the field this morning. Bob, 40 degrees, not exactly uh, what a lot of these players from down south are used to. Yeah, and Greg and Brad, I don't think it was 40 degrees Fahrenheit when these guys took the field at 11 o'clock this morning. It was still around zero with a windshield. So <laughs> Fair enough, Bob. More like, probably more like 25 <laughs> Fahrenheit, and it's certainly a rude awakening for uh, most of these players because most of them are from warmer climes. Some are from the central and northern part of the U.S., but a lot of them are from the south and uh, Certainly an eye-opener for them, but it didn't seem to hamper them in the in the morning workout. And they've just hit the field here again this afternoon. We uh, heard lots of yelling and shouting and cheering and uh, guys flying around. So, you know, if you're a player here, uh, this might be kind of a last chance for you. You've fallen through the cracks. You've been overlooked. You've been cut by teams elsewhere, and this might be your last chance. So, uh, you know, you're going to have to just suck it up and deal with the weather as best you can. So this really can be an opportunity for some some gentlemen who have performed at a high level, either in college or otherwise, and uh, feel that they still have an opportunity or at least deserve another look to make a professional team, Bob? Yeah, you know, these guys, Greg, just don't want to give up on the dream. Most of them are 22, 23, 24 years of age. They're from places like Virginia, Lynchburg, Missouri, Western State, Louisiana, Monroe, Pittsburgh State. You know, there's a million colleges down in the U.S., and a lot of the players that the Bombers signed this offseason, a lot of the guys at this mini camp are from some of the smaller schools where you get overlooked or, you, as I say, you fall through the cracks or you're maybe not quite big enough to attract attention, maybe a step too slow, but you've got a lot of other things going for you. And so... This is their chance now to prove to the Bombers, first of all, that they uh, deserve a chance to be invited to the main training camp, and probably close to half of them here won't be invited to main camp. They'll be cut after these three days, and then if they can get that far, uh, maybe earn a spot on the 2017 Blue Bomber roster. So, Blue Bombers mini camp, when is this the, the next or the last thing before the main camp, or is there anything else sort of coming in between, Bob? There's a rookie camp, uh, Brett, that runs May 20, I think it's May 24, 25, 26. And then there's a break and main camp starts on maybe the 28th. I, I think I've got the dates a day or two off, but somewhere in that ballpark. This is this mini camp they hold every year. They've held it in Florida in the past, which I think might be a good idea to reconsider. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but this, this, this is for the players to kind of get introduced to the bomber systems for the bomber coaches here to get a look at them. A lot of these players, the bomber coaches, just about all of them haven't seen in person. They've been scouted by Danny McManus, Ted Kovaya, uh, and the bomber scouting staff down in the States. They've been worked out down there and, and found that they're good enough to be invited to this mini camp. And so from here, uh, they advance if they're good enough to the rookie camp and then from there to the main camp. Bob, I asked uh, Dominic Davis uh, and uh, also uh, Dan Lefevre uh, the other day when I had the opportunity to meet them. You were there, uh, the autograph session on Monday down at IGF, and I asked them about culture. And you've been around this team as long as anyone and, and know the players that have come and gone over the years. Is there and has there been a culture shift in this group, in this organization? Well, there's no question about it, Greg, and it comes from the top with Wade Miller down through Kyle Walters, the GM, and I think um, 
more specifically and mostly through the head coach, Mike O'Shea. That's the individual that the players are most often in contact virtually every day of their lives and the coaching staff. It's a philosophy uh, of, you know, being accountable, of being professional, you know, all those kind of, I guess, cliche and hackneyed old words that we hear, but it's so true in pro sport. And it's developed here, no question, in the last two or three years in a way that I think uh, is part of the reason they went 11-7 and seven last year and appear to have a bright future. The people in charge know what they're doing. They know what they want. They know what they expect. They demand it from the players, uh, and, and they're getting it. They got it last year anyway, and it took time. It took time to build. We know they struggled the first two years that Mike O'Shea was the head coach, but we saw the results last year. And I think they've developed now a culture, and it's certainly, Greg, as you say, it's a word we love to kick around in sport, but it's, it's true. It, it's, it's applicable. I think they've developed now a culture uh, that is a very positive and a very good one here. Bob, go and get some hot chocolate. Yeah, I'm standing out here. You know, can you hear the drills and everything? The investors group field is there's dust everywhere and there's chip rock. And, you know, this, I guess they'll finish this place someday, will they? <laughs> I don't know. You're there. You, you let us know. <laughs> Filter back some information, maybe some pictures too, Bob. The, the great news is when the games are on, the, the people who come and watch them, they see no signs of any issues. And they do a beautiful job of cleaning up between jobs. All right, Bob. Hey, thanks thanks Bob. for that. Uh, Bob Irving at Bomber Minicamp, and we'll be hearing from Bob throughout the week on 680 CJOB. By the way, uh, 5 degrees Celsius is 41 Fahrenheit, so you're pretty much bang on there. Double it and then add 30, and z- although 0 equals 32, you can't, can't really... I guess you add 30. That falls apart at zero. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you just you double you it, just which know. is zero. Yeah, you just so you know. just add 30. Yeah, that's close, right? Close-ish. Yeah. yeah. Well ish. done. I that's, like the that's, ish. That's a, good, uh, I, that's a good lesson. I can't believe I've never heard that. I appreciate that, Greg. You oh. learn something new every day. It is coming up to 3 o'clock. After the news, we want to take you downtown for some potential redevelopment of the Exchange District and whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. It is Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. 308. Why did I put a piece of gum in my mouth? Can I put, get, bring yes, the garbage please. can over Thank you, you, Brett McGarry. You're such a good partner. <laughs> Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling with you until 4 o'clock, and then it'll be uh, Richard and Julie will slide in here. Uh, the, Brett, you know I'm a big proponent, a big lover of old buildings. I, I, own, uh, I own one. Myself uh, out in Minnedosa, oh, just cool. it's uh, over a hundred years old, and it's been repurposed, and is a you know one of those buildings that back in the day when I bought it, everyone in town from Minnedosa thought I was crazy. Nobody wants that building, but it took someone from the outside to come in and then give a little bit of a validation and some TLC. And I think that that's what's happened to a great extent uh, in the Exchange District. It took some people to to come from the outside, give this uh, designation as a historical collection of buildings and say, hey, this is worth preserving when we didn't even really realize it ourselves." And I, I think, you know, we have to realize that the Exchange District it exists because our economy sucked in the 1970s, right? And so uh, we're here. We're joined in studio. Uh, all I have is uh, Bryson Bodegas, and I don't think Bodegas is Bryson's last name. <laughs> yeah, this sort of came together as <laughs> the afternoon progressed. Bryson, Sorry. what's your last name? Sorry, uh, Bryson Maddernick from Bodegas Restaurant. What, what, he's apologizing to us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's our job Sorry. to know your name. Well, yeah. you've been at City Hall all day, and we'll let you, t- you tell us why you've been there. Yeah, well, we've been, uh, you know, we've been 
paying attention to what we find is like obviously a very important issue. Um, there's a there's a a change to a designation to one of the the buildings in the historical district in the exchange, and it's a Bodegos Restaurant in the corner of uh, 98 Albert Street. And what the uh, city council and EPC have been discussing is uh, basically uh, taking the historical uh, designation off the building uh, that was proposed by HRBC and putting uh, a commemorative uh, designation on that, but. With a commemorative designation, uh, what we found and what we learned about all this is that it basically opens the door uh, for the new owners of the structure to, uh, you know, demolish or you know, redevelop that site. And that's from what we've seen in the architectural plans and been on with the what the EPC presented is exactly what they wanted to do. So I know where you are. I know how good your chicken fingers are uh, from personal experience. For but for those that maybe don't know the uh, exact location, but can picture uh, the the exchange district. Maybe you can paint us a picture yeah. about where you're at. Absolutely. It's a unique corner. It's on the corner of, uh, it's three corners, I guess. It's on the corner of Albert, Arthur, and Bannatyne. And it uh, kind of takes a, uh, a loop around. It's a triangle it's a piece triangle. of property, Yeah, right? exactly. And it overlooks Old Market Square. And uh, we've been down there since uh, 2001. We were formerly the lineup restaurant. And then we rebranded to Bodegos in 2010. So uh, we've been down in the area a long time. Been a part of the, uh, you know, the area, the... Uh, uh, sat on the board of directors of the Exchange Biz and uh, have seen the development over the time, and so uh, we're just we're obviously really concerned and like to start a conversation and just make sure everybody knows that uh, what we find amazing is that uh, the city of Winnipeg would allow in the na- in a national historic site uh, for its buildings for a building to be torn down uh, on the pretext that it's uh, saving another building which is 90 Albert beside it. And uh, we're just, you know, at this point, just really taken aback that that's even that's even possible. We we figured that uh, the area was safe in that sense, uh, but it seems like it's it's going in that direction. So this building that Bodegos is currently housed in used to be a gas station. Yeah. So back in uh, it was designed. Um, yeah, the, the the drawings and everything were fascinating. It uh, it paints a really neat picture of the time of uh, of the area. It uh, it hasn't changed since uh, early turn of the century. Uh, we even found the old architecture drawings online, and uh, the building itself has stayed true to its form. And uh, I think that's what um, that's what's interesting, and that's what's really interesting about the exchange. I think the area pushes um, you know arts groups, um, entrepreneurs, um, schools to to really think how they can work within the spaces there and not destroy the spaces to work within them and and be a part of them. So when we see developments like this, we're we're always shocked because this is tearing down a building to redevelop a building. And that is, I don't think that's ever happened in the exchange. Uh, we're not against development because we think it's great when, you know, empty spaces can be developed or, you know, additions can be built onto architectural buildings, which we've seen in, you know, uh, Red River College. We've seen that um, at where... Uh, Patterson Greens Institute. Patterson Green, yeah. Like, you see it all over. So, I mean, we're I think that's wonderful development, but this is destructive development in our mind. This is like tearing down... Uh, a historical building, which you can see has been there and been part of the community for over 100 years, uh, on the on the on the notion that it needs to happen to save the building beside it, and we think that's a that's a, a garbage uh, reason. And I'm doing my math here. You're 26. What year did you say that you've been down there? 2001. 2001. So 16 years. Yes. There's been a thriving business going on yeah, in that building. And, and the building beside us, 90 Albert. So the new owners bought 90 and 98 Albert, and so the. The conversation has led that 98 Albert needs to be destroyed to build on to to make 90 viable. But over those years, 90 has been viable for, you know, over 100 years. It's, it's been four or five it's stories. It's a four-story. It's been uh, usually class, you know, B, C, office space. It's been home to 
John A. Mac- John McDonald of a uh, what the web store or the sorry the web shop uh, Avenue Four for almost fifteen years. They're a successful print company. Um, so you know we don't we don't buy it in that sense, and we just think that's a that, that's a false pretense that they're putting to EPC and City Council to make the argument that ninety eight needs to be destroyed to save ninety is where the conversation has gone. We'll talk a little bit about what the idea is for the development to go in at 90 and 98 Albert and talk about what's happened at City Hall when it comes to the subject. In a moment, Bryson Maternick is the co-founder of Bodegos and Cakeology just around the corner from Bodegos, and we'll continue our chat with Bryson after Traffic and Weather Together. Up next. All due respect to all my friends who uh, own, run, manage restaurants, the best chicken fingers in town, Bodegos. That's right. Uh, at the uh, buy section, we've got uh, Bannatine, Arthur, and Albert. Did I get that right, Bryson? Absolutely correct. Yeah. Bryson Maternick is co-founder of Bodegos and uh, Cakeology, and uh, a very unique, actually, uh, business setup uh, really quick for those that might not realize that you're essentially a co-op. Yeah, we actually formed into a cooperative um, a few years back, a worker cooperative, so a lot of our, our team is actually also owners, so it's, it's, a nice, uh, it's a nice business model, and we've been uh, in, enjoying it in the last few years. We were a corporation, we merged into a cooperative, so it's been, uh, it's been really successful so far. So the the people who the developers who bought your your building mm-hmm. Bodegos is at ninety eight Albert and it's owned uh, with by the same people who own the building right next door correct uh, ninety Albert which is uh, what is a four story yes so they want to redevelop they want to redevelop that building into sort of a mixed use I believe residential development is right it? yeah I believe the um, the architectural drawings that were presented and set up there had the uh, the, the removal of 98 Albert to, to 90 Albert uh, on the top floor would be, I guess, a private residency with a big a walkout balcony for the, I think the owners were, are hoping to be living there. Uh, the second floor was actually, is the architect said that that is going to be their floor, the ones who presented the proposal. Architect 2 is going to be, they're the ones going to be on the second floor of uh, 90, I guess the new 98 Albert, or so, unless it's one building. So the, 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 the contention you have here is that they're saying, because 98 Albert is deemed a historical site, and EPC sort of voted to in favor of this development, even though it was that goes against recommendations by various committees. Right? Yeah, exactly. And it's just um, and the argument is that you know ninety is not a is not a viable uh, with ninety eight being there, and ninety needs to be torn down for ninety to be viable. And you know we've never seen um, that argument. Uh, we, well, maybe it's been heard, but it's it's never got this much traction in that you would destroy a building in a national historic site uh, to save the other. Um, even buildings that have been empty. Like, and you have to remember, like, this is an active, successful building that exists. Like they're tearing down. This isn't a a, a burnt out old building that's, you know, no, you know, it's been vacant for 30 years. So I mean, it's almost comical to think. And even when that's the case, they restore the facade of those empty, burned out buildings to make sure the character and the fabric of the area stays intact. This proposal is completely, you know, it flies in the face of that. Oh, it's just, it's just, you know what I mean? It's, it's unbelievable. And then, so I think that's to the surprise of many people that they're like, this is impossible, but it's making traction. And it got, it went to council today and I think it actually passed. I'm personally not sure, but it passed EPC and we're pretty sure that council just approved that. So, you know, I, I mean, uh, sometimes this, these sorts of things come off as uh, sour grapes, right? It's like, oh, well, we're going to lose mm. our home and uh, that yeah. sort of thing. You're successful enough. You could find another location nope. in the exchange without any difficulty no, we've already and be extremely asked. successful. No, that's okay. not what this is about. No, we've been, I mean, we made the exchange our home uh, for many reasons. And we were down there since 2001 because it's a unique area. 
um, we just felt if we didn't speak up on this behalf, it's getting missed. You know, and we are in a very unique situation because, you know, we have to deal with this, the, the landowner, right? So in a sense, by speaking up on it, we're falling on our own sword. Like we're, you know, but somebody has to speak up on it because it's making way too much traction for this not to be talked about. And I just feel people in the exchange in the community are going to be very upset when they see what's happening on this. The, the ice rink, I wanted to make sure that we let mm. people know that that's how involved your group is involved uh, yeah, in the exchange. Uh, Nick Van Seglin, uh, he sits on the board at the exchange and he's a member of the of the worker cooperative and uh, heads up uh, heads up bodegos in, in the in the exchange with Daniel. Oh, he him and Mike uh, from King and Bannatine, they they just said they we're doing this. We're, we're flooding this rink because we think this is a great idea. And and they did it, and it was wonderful. And now now it's going to be a, a rink next year for sure, and I'll be flooded. And we're just, you know what I mean? That's that's the community, and that's the area, right? Like, it's a very small business, you know, grounded area, and it's just, it's cool that we're all part of that. So, yeah. Uh, just very quickly, we only have about 45 seconds left. And I, I'm going to put you on the spot yeah. by asking this, but if you didn't uh, occupy that space, if you were just a, an outside observer looking at this development, would you say it's a bad development? Yeah, it's anytime I think you r- remove a historical building from the area uh, on the basis of, of of any development, I think that's it, it's it's a bad idea. Adding onto a space, building onto it, working it, making it better is what everyone in the exchange has done over like over you know the last hundred years. Like everyone's worked within those spaces, so absolutely, like there, there's no doubt about that. Bryson Maternick is the co-founder of Bodegos and Cakeology. Bodegos is at 98 Albert, and we're going to have to reach out to the developers as well and see uh, if we can talk to some other people about this uh, proposed redevelopment of 90 and 98 Albert. Thanks for bringing it to our attention. Wonderful, and thanks for bringing this to the attention of the city, guys. appreciate it. Traffic, weather, sports, all up next. 3.38 on this Wednesday afternoon, hump day. We haven't used that terminology in a couple of weeks, if memory serves me correctly. Last week, I believe we told you about the continuing series of meetings being held around the province as part of the Wait Times Reduction Task Force. The Minister of Health, uh, Seniors and Active Living has established the Wait Times Reduction Task Force. The mandate of the task force is to recommend actions to shorten wait times in emergency rooms and for other priority procedures and treatments where Manitoba ranks below the Canadian average. And tonight there's a meeting. It takes place in St. Boniface. It is at the uh, Notre Dame Recreation Center Gymnasium. That's at uh, uh, 271 Cathedral Avenue. Uh, En français, uh, please, Brett McGarry. Uh, I think you got a pretty good Avenue de la Cathedral. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I, I, I like my best with, with, with all respect to my French friends. Uh, joining us <laughs> now to talk about uh, tonight's meeting and this focus on priority procedures from 6 p.m. till 8.30 p.m., Dr. Michael Rackless joins us now. And Dr. Rackless, uh, tell us the, the focus of the meeting and how you'll be uh, going about interacting with those who attend. Okay, thank you. And thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about um, the priorities committee within the task force. Um, that we're, we have a number of consultations and ways of we're getting information. So we're consulting um, broadly with, uh, with medical uh, professionals and with, uh, we're actually just finished a consultation at the Grace Hospital with people involved with MRI scans and, and hip and knee surgery. And, um, and we're also consulting with the public. And so tonight, um, uh, uh, 
as you mentioned, from 6 to 8.30 um, at the Notre Dame Recreation Center, we're going to be inviting the public to come and tell us what they think the issues are, particularly regarding the the procedures we're dealing with, which are hip and knee replacement surgery, cataract surgery, and MRI scans. What are you hearing so far? There have been a number of these public meetings now uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, what, are, what are you hearing from these meetings? We're hearing uh, we're, well, we're hearing a, a, a lot of things, and of course, I think there is a general concern um, that people are waiting too long for the services that they need. Um, but the the three procedure areas that we're dealing with are are really covering a spectrum of issues, uh, even in in our preliminary views. Um, we're trying to understand um, what is the capacity. What is the demand? And I think that there's a, there's there's I think some some of the public might think, well, it's really simple. It takes this long to do a scan, and this is the number of referrals you're getting, et cetera. But for MRI scans, um, the Auditor General's report. And I'm referring to the part of the report that is public. I have not seen the part that mentions names, et cetera. But the part that's public, a very good report, um, identifies, as many other reports have in in Canada and elsewhere, that probably at least a quarter of the MRI scans that are being done are not really adding value to the patient's health care. And so that for MRIs, it's not really a simple matter of, well, we've got people waiting several months, and for the people who really need it, that's not a good thing. But if we simply add more scans and then we get a whole bunch more where it's questionable whether it's really useful for the patient's care, then we we may not reduce the wait times at all. So for MRI scans, we, we know we have to do something about the fact that there's a lot of inappropriate scans, scans that aren't adding value that are being ordered. On the other hand, for, you know, as we try to understand again, capacity and demand in hip and knee surgery, um, it looks like there may, we may not just be doing enough to meet the demand, but we, we still have to look at that issue carefully. So it's a wide range of things that we picked up so far, particularly from expert reports and some of the experts we're dealing with. And then we're looking to find out in these public meetings, what are people's own experiences and how would they see trying to deal with an issue like um, some several MRI scans that are maybe not adding value? How would we deal with this uh, in, in a public policy way? So we're, we're, we've had a few of these public meetings so far. And we've had great um, feedback from the public, great little you know things that we, we feel are going to be useful um, either directly or to take back to the medical professionals we're dealing with asking about. Dr. Michael Grackless joins us. Focus on priority procedures takes place tonight, 6 to 8.30. Notre Dame Recreation Center, that's in the gymnasium at uh, 271 Cathedral Avenue. And uh, you mentioned that report uh, about MRIs uh, in particular. And, and you know it's going to come up tonight, Dr. Rackless, so we might as well uh, address the elephant in the room. That, that, that terminology cue jumping is going to come up tonight. And, and uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid that I, you know, I just don't have any information beyond what I've been gleaning from the local media on on the issue, um, and I, I, I really can't say that I know enough at this point to even know if anybody has strictly jumped the queue. Um, so, so I, 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 I know that that's going to come up, um, uh, but. Uh, I don't. I'm afraid I don't have anything mm-hmm. to feed back to people. I hope, you know, if there are people that, that know more 
um, uh, then it would be great if they came out to the meeting, but don't know that at this point. And again, with MRI scans, um, where, where we, we are in our preliminary view, where we, we, we know that if we could make sure that even 20% or 15% of scans weren't ordered, where they're clearly not appropriate and don't add value to the patient's journey, then we could get those wait lists, um, which are currently several months long for many patients, we could get them down to zero pretty quickly. I, I rushed to add, by the way, that in um, when uh, at least when patients are correctly identified, people who are uh, emergent or urgent don't wait. So if, if somebody is in an emergency situation um, where they might have a disc um, uh, compressing a nerve, et cetera, they, they, they won't wait or they shouldn't wait. Um, there's enough capacity to do those emergent patients. But the problem is, of course, once you get a long wait time, then it becomes much more difficult to prioritize patients. And then there's a risk. Somebody who really needs it won't be done at the window that they should get it in. Dr. Rackless, thanks very much. Uh, the, the number uh, for a lot of people uh, that may be startling, 74,000 MRIs done in Manitoba every year. That's right. Um, and um, again, uh, it looks like maybe 15,000 of them, maybe more, are just not adding value to the patient's journey. And and if we could stop doing those, we could do the people who really need them faster. And we could put that money maybe to other parts of the system, which would add value. Dr. Michael Rackless, thank you so much, sir. Once again, You're the focus welcome. on priority procedures tonight, 6 to 8.30 p.m., Notre Dame Recreation Centre, Gymnasium 271. Avenue de la Cathédrale. Does that work for you, Greg? <laughs> it works for me beautifully. <laughs> I like that. I, <laughs> I was just about to cue the music, Jeff, and I look up and Master Control and Forte is holding up the sheet. Are you guys going to give away prizes? Give it away. Give it away now. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for the reminder, Jeff. <clears throat> We're a team. We're on the same train of thought. Uh, okay, this week, every day, I decided, because we're giving away stuff for the Rondex Radarama Car Show happening at East End Arena in Transcona, I thought that I'd just go with questions that have to do with rods. So yesterday's question had to do with the Simpsons, specifically Rod's brother, Todd. We flushed your sin sticks down to hell. <laughs> Smokers are jokers. Today, actually, oddly enough, is another Simpsons question about rods. I could not have predicted that, Brett McGarry. It has to do with this. Uh, how'd you solve the door dilemma? Homer Simpson was the real hero here. He jury-rigged the door closed using this. Hey, what is that? It's an inanimate carbon rod! Remember that? Homer goes to space and he jams the door closed with the rod and saves the day. The inanimate carbon rod! The question today involves the fact that the rod ended up featured on the cover of a magazine. What was that magazine and what was the headline that accompanied it in The Simpsons? 204-780-6868. Nobody's going to get this. I knew it, so someone else is going to know it. 204-780-6868 is the number to call. Traffic and weather together. Next. Julie Buckingham is here. Richard Cluche in St. Agathe. He's also here, sort of. Yes, Richard. Hey, guys. Are hey you guys, how's it going? Doing really well. Uh, can you see the uh, church steeple in St. Agath? I can see the church steeple. I can see one of the TV towers. What I don't see is water. And uh, when we were here 20 years ago, it was nothing but water. So we're marking the occasion here on the week of the fall of St. Agath, telling the story 20 years later 
of the Red River flood. And what is quite apparent uh, from a lot of these communities, especially St. Agatha, is just how much it has grown, especially in the last 10 years. Pretty amazing that way. Uh, we're going to talk to one of the people that was there uh, the morning that St. Agath fell. And then after the 4.30 news, a former premier, his honour, Gary Philman, we sat down for an interview earlier this week. You'll see it on uh, Global News tonight at 6 o'clock. They'll be here as well. And uh, don't want to be clichéic here, but, you know, a lot of memories, a flood of memories from fighting the flood back here. And the symbolism here was when this place fell, that's when people in Winnipeg got really, really nervous about whether or not uh, Winnipeg and, and the dikes would hold. Julie, what else do you have coming up? We'll have a chat with David Asper, who has been confirmed as the police board chair. Find out what his plans are as they take that organization forward. Janice Lukes will join us, city councillor. We got some numbers today from the city on on the contract for the Waverly underpass, and the numbers seem... Well, quite frankly, really good, almost too good to be true. So it's trying to figure out uh, if the contract is around $49, $50 million, and the whole project is supposed to cost considerably more than that. Where's the rest of that 100 or so million dollars coming from or going to? Uh, did did uh, the people that estimated the project mess up here? Did the contractors give us a, a plum deal or is it just being spent in other ways? We're trying to put all of that together in mm-hmm. a conversation with Sandy Mowat of the Nurses Union. They had the big rally at the ledge today. Julie Buckingham, Richard Cloutier, thank you so much. Richard Cloutier, once again, live on location in St. Agath. And just got to quickly mention uh, the winner of our trivia question for Rotorama, the car show, Rondex Rotorama happening this weekend at East End Arena, Daryl Lahid got the answer to the question from The Simpsons. When Homer goes to space, jams the door closed with the rod. <laughs> that rod ended up featured on the cover of a magazine. The answer was Time magazine, and the headline was In Rod We Trust. Yeah. About to show some close-ups of the rod. So, congratulations, Daryl Lahid. <laughs> you are going to Rodorama this weekend. And by the way, congratulations to Pam Kuchik, who qualified at 215 for Predator Ridge, the bucket list flyaway to Predator Ridge. And your next chance to qualify is at 515 this afternoon with Richard and Julie. And the big draws on Friday. I was gonna say, tomorrow. No, damn. <laughs> it's Friday. Tomorrow's Thursday. I just about made it through an entire day knowing what day it was the entire time. (laughs) I'm going to say goodbye. Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling, Jeff Forte, 680 CJOB.